You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building credible workplace culture. Our guest today is RJ Milner, Global Head of People Analytics at Uber. RJ and his team accelerate business impact by providing the data-driven insights, research, and product that ignite opportunity, improve productivity, and increase well-being. RJ's responsibilities include people analytics and research for Uber's global businesses and people functions, people data infrastructure, and people data privacy and security policy. RJ brings 20 years of global experience improving organizational performance through evidence-based talent strategies. Prior to joining Uber, RJ led the people analytics teams at McKesson and Chevron. Also, RJ received the Burson by Deloitte What Works Award for Transforming HR and the Human Resource Executive Top HR Product of the Year. His work has appeared in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other books, articles, and podcasts. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and RJ discuss how do we continuously listen to the employees more often and more timely without being intrusive, how to collaborate effectively in hybrid workplaces, and meeting hygiene. What are some good rules for getting the most out of your meetings, including how to treat one-way updates in meetings? This episode was sponsored by Wilson HCG, a strategic global recruitment partner focused on bringing out the best in what your workplace culture has to offer. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today we have RJ Milner, Head of People Analytics at Uber. RJ, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, we were just kind of doing our pre-check-in here, looking at these topics. Uh, For those listening, we have not covered these topics before, so kudos to Nick, who pre-screens our topics, and RJ to really land on some beautiful, beautiful um, conversation uh, pieces here. I'm really excited to dive in today. So, and RJ, thank you for your time. I, I can only imagine how busy uh, a role like yours is at a company like Uber. It must be fantastically busy and like drinking from a fire hose. And that's part of the fun. There's always a new challenge to tackle. And some of the things we're talking about today, collaboration, meeting effectiveness, uh, they're such fun, seemingly intractable problems, uh, but we're seeing uh, some really cool light at the end of the tunnel on these, which it really improves the life, the life of our employees and also uh, the work we do. No, I, I, I'm dying to dive into it. Before we do, we've done an intro, but RJ, give us your success path. Where did you get into the people side of the business? Walk us through, go back in time. Yeah, so very few people have their childhood dream being a people analyst, right? So I wasn't six years old saying, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, but I, I went to a school actually for international relations and, and economics. So I thought I'd go into public policy, to be honest. And somewhere along the way, I fell in love with finance and economics and ended up on Wall Street. And uh, this is early 2000s, kind of the, the first dot-com uh, burst, and had this idea of, well, you know, how do you value companies? Like, how, how do we actually look at companies that uh, maybe like high revenue, very low, low or no profitability? And what impact do a company's people have on its actual performance, on its financial performance? So I want to start digging into that and exploring the impact that a company's people and specifically its talent strategies. And how do we go about attracting, developing, engaging, retaining people? Do, do differences in companies' approaches, do they have an impact on those companies' financial performance, their profitability, their total shareholder return? And that, you know, 20, 22 years ago, started me on this really wonderful, fun, crazy journey into people analytics. So I-, I uh, RJ, went- sorry. What- what did you find? What, the, what was the big, oh my God, I can't believe there's a 
you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. What did you find? Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, absolutely yes. So when we think about uh, the practices we have around uh, creating connection between what someone does and the impact that they're having in the company or the company strategy, that's a tremendous driver of engagement. Uh, engagement being a massive driver towards effort and also intent to stay uh, or retention. All these things are linked together. So we have to be very intentional about the policies we create and how, you know, how we're interacting with our employees, which seems intuitive, right? Like it, it makes sense. But we're able to put data behind that to understand what works and what doesn't, how employees behave, what they react to. It's, a, uh, it's very powerful for an organization. Then we can start linking that back to business performance and productivity. Uh, and that's kind of the journey I've been on for the past two decades or so. And when you think about this discipline, what we call people analytics, which sounds you're pretty new to most folks because it is, it's, it hasn't been around forever. It's a fascinating blend of, of industrial organizational psychology, behavioral science, data science to bring all of these aspects of human performance together. Wow, that's that. I mean, it sounds complex. Like, are you sitting in front of a spreadsheet? You're actually, I mean, you are bringing data in. So there's, there's a, you know, there has to be a, you know, the analyst approach to that. I, I envision you're literally looking at, you know, spreadsheets and doing, you know, calculations. Walk us, what does that look like? Yeah, so a lot of times, you know, we're, uh, we do have certainly have spreadsheets in front of us, other kinds of tools. We're trying to understand the relationships between things. So um, let's take employee surveys as an example. One of the things we kind of teed up to talk about was you know, how do we listen to employees and react to their responses? So when employees tell us something, right? So uh, how, in, how engaged they feel, for instance, we're also looking for relationships to other kinds of experiences. So uh, how do those things factor together? How are they related? And then how does that relate to other things like uh, productivity, performance in an organization, retention levels, all of these things, so we can understand the bigger story. And so much of our work, and just like so much of work in, in different lines of business, is looking across multiple different types of data and trying to see what, what is the story between the data. When you bring it all together, what's it trying to tell us? And that leads us to experiments and interventions of, of ways that we can improve work to increase the happiness of our employees, how engaged they are, their health and well-being, and ultimately drive business impact by doing that. Tell us the, the most... Um or a unique story about where the data told you something or to head in a direction that you just didn't see. A great example of where, where did data work where it was like, wow, we didn't see this, didn't know this. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you a great one that actually happened uh, shortly after the pandemic. So we were trying to understand like, how employees were doing after the pandemic and, and their safety was first and foremost for us, uh, then also kind of their mental well-being. Were they thriving or were they really struggling? You know, about 90% of our, of our full-time employees changed their, their work environment completely. They went from, say, you know, in office to, to fully remote. And this is back in uh, when the pandemic first started. Uh, so let's say February, March, right, of 2020. Uh, and as we were going through that, uh, one of the things that we were trying to understand was once we, once we took care of the basic needs, made sure employees were secure, they were safe, we started to figure out the, the different types of benefits they might need we were trying to understand, did they feel productive or not? Was this working for them, working from home? And the thing that, that um, really surprised us was that this relationship between productivity and focus time. And what I mean by focus time is having two or more hours of uninterrupted time where you can focus on a task or a project. And, and I don't know about you, but that's really hard to find. You know, like in, in my day, like, like that two hour block where you can just zone in and work on something. 
But what we found is as we looked at these two things together, productivity and focus time, they were extremely strongly correlated. So the more focus time you could get, the more productive an employee felt. And that perception of productivity, which is kind of a fun aside, that perception of productivity was very strongly linked to actual observed productivity. Lots of ways to measure productivity in different types of businesses, but those things link together. So two, two big aha moments. One is that employees' perception of productivity is actually a very strong proxy for productivity. If you ask them if they feel product, productive, it's a pretty good, pretty good response back. And secondly, the more focus time you can give them, the more productive they could be. And so that got us on this track, which we can kind of talk about in a little bit of, well, how do we give employees more focused time and what's standing in the way? But that was a big aha moment that I didn't see coming. And is that, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I know Elon had this, you know, at least I read online and he was like, everyone come back to the office. Was that, you, you know, was it spur of the moment, data-driven to get people focused? Where, where you know, and how did that land? Uh, well, so it's, it's interesting. I can't speak for, for Elon or for or Tesla. Um, I, it's a huge, it's a huge question for so many of us uh, in, or, in different organizations and in, in the people function of in-office versus remote or hybrid, that decision. Once you've gone past that decision, it's a huge question of, well, okay, if it's hybrid, then how many days in the office? And what I'd suggest is it's actually kind of the wrong question. Like, I don't know that, that that's the right question we should be asking. Is it five days in the office? Is it three days? Is it one day? It's not one size fits all. It's impossible. Yeah, it, it is. It's so dependent, certainly upon the individual. But you know, what I'd suggest is it's actually more dependent upon the type of work. And what we're starting to find is that the office has transitioned from a place where we go to work to a place where we go to collaborate, and even more than that, a place where we go to socialize. Right. You know, uh, Microsoft just did some really interesting work. They, they published a study yesterday where they asked employees about what motivates them to come back into the office. And you know, about three quarters said, you know, you know um, I'm really not motivated to come back because my employer is asking me to come back. But what does motivate them to come back? About 84 or so percent said, I'm motivated to come back socialize with my colleagues. And about 85% say, hey, I'm motivated to come back so I can rebuild these networks that I have with my team. And what we've been seeing is over the course of the pandemic, it's two years now, is that those social networks, the informal networks within teams that are so incredibly important for performance, for senses of well-being, for, for retention, they have been eroding. Right. And they've actually been eroding kind of across networks. So not just within a team, but across teams. Well, it's, it's interesting. I was just talking to a very good friend and advisor of mine, Sherry um, Conway, works for Southwest Airlines. And we were talking about different strategies around this. And I was saying one of the things we, we've done on a quarterly, um, quarterly planning perspective is well, actually two things. We've gone back to the basics of giving um, employees the tools on how to build relationships because it's taken for granted. We Sometimes people do not have the tool. That is not, we're not teaching it in the workplace. Uh, they didn't learn it in university. <clears throat> you know, some people don't even really understand what tools they use. So we kind of went back to basics and said, look, here's some tools for your toolbox to build relationships. And then let's make some commitments about building relationships with people that you've lost relationships with, or there are new colleagues that started during the pandemic. And so let's put some accountability metrics around that. So you choose your own adventure here. So I don't know, RJ, RJ, you and I are going to go golfing or go for a coffee. And, and, and then we checked in on that 
two days ago at our quarterly planning, and it was the most impactful thing that had happened. Exactly to your point, what are your thoughts on on a strategy like that? Ron, I love that because a lot of times people struggle with understanding how to build relationships, and it's so much more difficult in a remote or in a, or a hybrid environment. So having that kind of playbook and having a guide in terms of how to build these relationships and build connections is incredibly valuable. You know, the thing, the other thing that's helpful is to understand when, when do we need to be face-to-face for these yeah. types of connections and when do we not need to be? And so going, going back to that question of how many days are we in the office or when are we in the office? If you reframe the question in terms of, well, why do I need to go into the office? What type of work do I need to go in the office for? Or what types of behaviors do I need to go in the office for? That I think that's a more, a more productive way to look at it. And it could still be a certain number of days if you're trying to, to keep all of that type of work or those behaviors into those days. But thinking about it in terms of, hey, what type of work needs to be face-to-face? But, but let's talk about that, RJ. What are your thoughts? Like, Give me an example of two roles. This one face-to-face all day long. This one, maybe not. So the role question is interesting. And I'm not sure that, um, I don't know that it breaks down that way, Ron. It's, it, I'd, I'd love to explore that some more because the, there's across roles, I think there are reasons to interact face-to-face and there are reasons that you might want to be remote for sense of flexibility. That the thing that we found, and actually um, a, a good friend of mine, Michael Arena has done some wonderful, wonderful work on this, is that there might be three different types of reasons why you really need to be face-to-face. So if you think about that idea again of, the office is a, is a as a place where we kind of collaborate and socialize. You might be optimizing for collaboration and productivity and flexibility in a hybrid environment. One is, hey, you're coming face to face to discover things, so to discover new insights or new ways of thinking. And that's the value of like what we used to call the water cooler conversation, right? right you're you're right. bumping into somebody at the elevator or the water cooler. It's that serendipitous meeting. The other reason you might come in a face-to-face conversation, whether it's an office or somewhere else, is a sense of cohesion. And you're trying to build trust. And trust is really, really hard to build outside of a face-to-face environment. There was some research that came out that said, hey, it takes 16 of these Zoom meetings to build the same baseline level of trust you'd have with one face-to-face. For sure. And if you're doing a phone, I think it's like 26 phone calls to the same baseline level of trust. And over text or email, just forget it, you'll never get there. And so if you're trying to build trust in a team or you're trying to engage in like a healthy, disruptive debate face-to-face. And so the third is around influencing. Super hard to influence remotely. It's doable. We've been doing it for decades. You know, people work from home is not new. Uh, But if you're trying to influence major decisions, it's not so much better to be face-to-face. And I think if, if we kind of give employees that kind of guidance to say, Hey, these, these are three types of, of modes where you're going, to be, you're going to benefit from being face-to-face. Now look at the work you're doing, look at your calendar, um, and try to gear the face-to-face interactions towards these times. The, the tricky part, which you, which you nailed, is like, gosh, it's really hard to coordinate because right, you have right. to be at, at the office at the same time as your peers. So I, I was thinking of two other things, and go through that one, two, three punch again. Just, just review those again. Sure. So discovery. So to, yeah. to discover new insights, meet new people, uh, trust or cohesion. You know, to build those trusting bonds, and then to uh, to influence decisions. Right. Got it. Yeah. I think you're spot on. The, the the two things that I think about that, or maybe outside of those, or maybe they 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 correlate directly. But one, I've I've certainly viewed um, people 
being more stressed and um, the, that lack of energy and dopamine kick around human beings. And so the, I, I feel like there's this, the, the younger generation's not seeing that older people are aware of that and being like, I just need to be around people. I can feel it. I'm just itchy, you know? I'm, and so I feel like that, that is causing some burnout that some people aren't. But the other thing that I'd say, which does tie into just what you're talking about on some of these um, items is skill building in skill, skill building in building their EQ, understanding how to read a room, how to, you know, the persuasion part, which connects um, to one of your pillars there. I mean, absolutely. They, I think that there's this lack of skill building if that takes 10 times the work, if you're trying to do this on zoom, right. Uh, you don't, don't know how to read energy and those types of things. So there, so, so it's very interesting. And, and, and I think that the narrative in some, you know, cause you had said, well, there's, it's hard to say come back three days or five days, but I also think the narrative from some uh, corporations might, might need adjustment. And what I mean by that is we're down to change management. You now have to get me out of my basement. I'm comfortable here. I've been here for two and a half years. What's in it for me? Because most will say, well, the company needs, this is better. If you collaborate, we have better results at the company, but what about me? And so I think that message tends to be missing. What are you seeing? Yeah, it, it, that, that narrative is really challenging. So if you ask employees, do you feel productive? Most, I mean, a, a very large number will say, yes, I feel very productive working the way that I'm working now. And so it, it's, it's hard to, to say, come back to the office, or at least I'll give you kind of my own personal opinion on this. I think it's hard to say, come back to the office to be more productive, especially when across the pandemic, what, what most organizations have seen is an increase in productivity. Right. There's a, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, by the way, but on, on average, and speaking for across companies now, the average work week went up for anywhere between five to seven hours per week. So the argument of, we want you to come back to the office so that you can be more productive when productivity is already high. And then, oh, by the way, that might be an additional one to three hours, of a, depending on the city you're in, of a commute per day to do that. And then less focused on when you're in the office, that's difficult. And I think it's actually not the reason to come back into the office. You know, there, there are things that will in office in or face-to-face -face that will drive more productivity, but it's really more about those things that employees want to come back to the office for, you know, it's right. that collaboration, it's that socialization, it's so hard to do remotely. And yes, for certain things like ideation and innovation or, or decision-making and influencing, we are going to be way, way more productive face-to-face -face during those things. But it's, it is, so much about kind of not to try to sell it, but it's so much more about positioning why this is a better place to do that type of work versus a, a kind of a blanket number, I think. On collaboration, obviously, I mean, you guys are tech heavy. I'm just going to make that assumption. I think that's probably a fair one. How are you effectively collaborating in a hybrid work environment? What do you, what technology tools, what are you doing? Because I, I, I hear you, I think with humans getting together, but that's not always realistic, right? And so what, what strategies are you guys taking uh, at Uber to collaborate in the, in the hybrid environment? Yeah, so uh, certainly they were on uh, Zoom right now. Using, using kind of Zoom or teleconferencing is something that we've done a lot pre-pandemic and we continue to do post-pandemic, very, very effective. Uh, and also collaboration tools. So, so uh, most of our documents uh, we're, we're collaborating on real time. Those have been tremendously helpful. And then over time, we've been getting together more often as well in person, uh, but for, for more select reasons, for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. Uh, but a lot of the, the collaboration tools that we have, collab uh, virtual whiteboards, jam sessions, certainly virtual meetings, 
those, those have been incredibly helpful to, to maintain networks and to be able to collaborate on collaborative work. So much of the work that we do you know, is, is building, right? It's, it's innovation, it's building, collaboration's incredibly important for that. I think the, the downside and the downside that a lot of other companies are feeling is that you can get into a position doing these things of collaborative overload. And what I mean by that is, you know, for, for many of us, when we move to a initially fully remote or a hybrid type of environment, now, now meetings are our, they're our currency, right? We're, we're in, in meetings um, instead of the face-to-face environment and meeting volume skyrocket. Right. Uh, and so how do we make sure that we've got the right types of meetings the right volume of meetings we're meeting for the right reasons? And that's probably the, you know, the, the next, uh, the next big challenge. So let's talk about that. How do we figure that out? What, from your experience, what's that look like? What's, what are some of the strategies on ensuring it's effective and some of the pitfalls to watch out for, for in- ineffectiveness? Yeah. Well, I remember I mentioned that Microsoft study that came out, they've been doing a wonderful job, uh, both through surveys and looking through uh, Microsoft 365 and, um, and teams understanding what's been happening over the past couple of years of collaboration. So I highly recommend checking that out. But one of the things that they've seen is that since the pandemic, a meeting volume has gone up by upwards of 150%, right? So we're just meeting a lot more in this virtual environment because we, we want to collaborate and we're, we're trying to maintain our networks, even though network, network connections have decreased uh, pretty significantly. You know, for us at Uber, we saw the same thing. We were having more meetings with more people for more of the day. So if you look at right after pandemic, we were having about 30% more meetings with about um, 35 30 or so percent more time with about percent more people, right? So right. <clears throat> bigger and bigger and bigger. The first thing we had to do is just decrease that volume. So we know for managers in particular, that's a very, very heavy load in terms of how much time you're spending through the week. And we mentioned earlier how important focus time is. Well, focus time is scarce, especially for managers and especially, especially for, for executives. So how do we start to take down that volume of meetings? Well, one thing you can do is you can say, we need to reduce the amount of hours in meetings. But the risk you have there is you might actually reduce meetings that are very impactful. One-on-ones, for instance, between a manager and her or his direct report, it's actually a very productive use of time uh, in, in terms of what it does for employee productivity, for employee engagement, that ability to help prioritize work, which is, is hugely powerful for, for both employee and business outcomes. So if you say we want to bring down the amount of meeting time so we can reallocate that to focus time, but then also give people guidance on, hey, what types of meetings aren't valuable? And give you a couple of answers to that. One is status updates. Um, You know, for us, almost half of our meetings, pardon me, are status updates. So can you shift them to something that's asynchronous uh, or make really quick lightning rounds of, you know, five minutes for status updates, but not have a- RJ, what what does asynchronous mean, sorry? Sure, so instead of, let's say, Ron, you and me are meet for 30 minutes to go through the status of all of our projects, which happens a lot, you know, in a lot of different companies we might just have a, a running dock where we, where we you know, add the new status. Is it green, yellow, red? Where are the new milestones? What's happening in the last 15 days, next 15 days? And we just do that asynchronously. So we don't need to meet live for that conversation or using a project management platform you know, to do that. So you don't really need to have this live conversation for a status update or an informational meeting. 
which sometimes is a lot of the reasons why we, we have meetings. We put meetings on the calendar. Um, funny. We, we just went through this because um, we do like a, we call it a project scorecard, right? Uh, and so we use like monday.com. And so we just talked about, we, we finished a two-day uh, quarterly planning. And I had um, noticed that we were giving status updates for projects that were done. And, you know, and, and, and to me, then it's a status update, which to me is not a good use of time. And the question was, could we, was there an opportunity to just talk about stuck points? If you're not stuck, if you're on, if you're on target move, let's not even discuss this. If you need help, if you're stuck, if the person managing the meeting noticed that you were behind, then they could, they could interact, but we would just keep it to solving versus uh, status. Does that make sense? I think it's brilliant. And so the, you know, if we go beyond just the status, are we green, yellow, red, or whatever the milestone might be, thinking about what's the sticking point and how do we need to solve that? So let's use the time to actually get context and try to drive the decision or drive the discussion. And that's a great use of time and a great use of a meeting. Uh, you know, something else that we found was actually around size of a meeting and length of a meeting. So, um, Ron, have you been in a large meeting lately? Well, our quarterly, it was, it was too large and, and we feel like the size it just was, was, was great. And so I, I just did both and, and saw the difference. It was, it was, you know, very different and, and much more productive in a smaller group. Yeah. So that's actually what we're, we're getting at. Like I've, I've been in across companies and, and different, different places, large meetings, and it's very difficult to stay fully engaged and have discussion in a large meeting. And what we actually found to the data, and by the way, huge credit to the people analytics team at Uber uh, for, for doing this. Uh, uh, Louis Chang and Nate Smith were some of the folks responsible for this work, but they did what we called a diary study. And we looked across 1600 uh, different meetings or actually more than 1600 meetings. And we asked managers to, to catalog what happened in that meeting. So was it effective? Was it not effective? How engaging was it? We got all kinds of data from the manager in a diary style. So it's a very qualitative type of study. On the back end, though, we were tracking all different other types of things about the, that each one of those meetings. How long was it? How many people? And so on and so forth. Mm. And what we found was that meetings with more than eight people, uh, it's very hard to stay engaged and not the best for decision making. So if you want to have critical discussion, dialogue, engagement, drive a decision, eight people is about the max you can have in that meeting. The other thing we found which is fascinating is that, and it kind of goes to um, you know, what we might just generally think, but 30 minutes is about the max you can have in a meeting before people start getting distracted. So so, so, you, so segments being, if it's a full day, 30, 30, 30. Yeah, well, it's interesting. If you're doing a full day, uh, that'd be an interesting thing to test. You know, we've seen an hour and a half be a good amount of time because 30 minutes is pretty compressed. If right. you get into a meeting, and I know for me, if I'm in like an hour, an hour and a half meeting, there's probably Slack and email going on. And what we found is that once you get past that 30 minutes in a meeting, it's exactly what happens. People start getting distracted. They, they get emails, they start to check, they're responding to a message, they're onto something else. But on 30, within 30 minutes, you can keep it very, very focused. Well, it's funny, one of the things we talked about, so we literally, again, at Corley, just went through different strategies. One of the things that came up, was from, it was Maddie, I think, that brought this up, was she had read or, or heard somewhere, you know, instead of how long do we need for the meeting, how quickly can we get this done? Like just, just, just changing that. Cause how long is like an hour 45, how quickly you know, we could get this done in 25 minutes. Is that, what are your thoughts on, on that okay. thinking? I know you said that yeah. maybe, you know, I know in the one-on-one you're saying you don't, maybe don't want to compress the time, but what are your thoughts? You know, we didn't study that round, but it's a brilliant idea. Um, you know, one of the things that we have found extremely useful is 
making sure there's an agenda for every meeting. And, and if we kind of jump off of that, uh, why are we saying 30 minutes for a meeting or an hour? Look at the agenda and how much time you need. Maybe that's a 10 minute meeting based on the agenda. Maybe it's 15, but sometimes we, um, it, we try to fill the space that's allotted on the calendar. And if right. there are three bullet points, let's get those three bullet points done and then give the time back. You know, I was saying this to, and I don't know how this works, but you know, sometimes I'll do a talk for a group and they'll ask me to, you know, maybe, I, maybe I shift content for it. I, and I'm last minute all the time. I'll do a 45 minute talk for somebody. And people are listening to this being like, wow, I can't believe he's saying this, but I won't prepare. I do my 45 minutes, but I watch my timer and I end 45 minutes on the dot. And it seems like I've done it a thousand times. The clock is very important. Should, you know, do you think that the clock should be on the meeting? Like what, how did you time keep those meetings at the half hour to ensure, did everyone see it? Or did someone say, Hey, we've got five left. Like, how did you manage the time? That's interesting. So in this particular study, we were looking at how long was the meeting? So if it was a 15 minute meeting, a 30, a 45 hour and so on and so forth. So we were just observing the meetings. We weren't controlling for them. But what we understood was once you got past 30, the amount of distraction increases. Uh, and so what we're, what we're kind of communicating out now is uh, if you try to keep it to 30, you're going to minimize the distractions. So once you go over 30, just know right. uh, the amount of engagement is going to go down. Now, what we do with that then becomes interesting with th these types of insights because it's, um, we can certainly inform you know, our teams that, you know, if you're trying to keep people engaged, try to limit the interaction below eight, try to keep the time below 30, or we can start nudging and try to build that into our calendaring systems. So there's a bit of a, a you know, a speed bump, right? If I'm, if I'm have a meeting that needs to be a decision meeting and I invite 20 people, I might get a little flash saying, hey, RJ, are you sure you want to do that? Uh, it might not be a best idea. Here's a link to some of the research that the teams have done here to explain why. And if you still want to do that, you're free to do that. Interesting. Uh, helping change behavior you know, through information. So I love it. It's the 830 strategy, right? Yeah. And let's go in the meeting, RJ. Um, what strategies or best practices has the data shown, or do you guys just implement maybe outside the data to ensure um, like a, you know, everyone's heard at the meeting, uh, the largest voice like myself doesn't take over the meeting. What, what, what happens in the meeting? What strategies within that half hour, if that's the, 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 the optimal time? Yeah. And, you know, we didn't get into that as much, Ron, but it's such a great question. You know, one of the things I actually heard podcast was nobody speaks twice until they spoke once, which I thought was brilliant. That, that was a, was it the Supreme court um, uses that? Yeah. So, um, and it's a wonderful pick. Uh, one thing that we're looking for um, and that we found actually through that study was understanding uh, does a meeting have, for instance, and these are some really basic hygiene principles, but they mm -hmm. be very effective. Does the meeting have an agenda? You know, does, does every person going uh, have a specific role or responsibility and do they know those roles and responsibilities? And when that starts to cut down on our you know, having two, three or more people from the same reporting line in the same meeting, uh, it, making sure we've got the clear decision makers, all those basic kind of hygiene rules in the meeting and just increasing the efficiency of the meeting, making sure you actually achieve the outcomes that you want going in. But a lot of the times that's not the way organizations do meetings. Some companies are very, very good at it. Others are still learning those kinds of principles. 
If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that one of the key components of a high performance culture is how you hire and retain talent. It can be a little daunting to try and figure out how to attract your next high performer, let alone someone who is also a perfect culture fit for your organization. That's why you need a talent partner that prioritizes culture throughout the entire hiring process. Wilson HCG is a strategic global recruitment partner focused on bringing out the best in what your workplace culture has to offer. From employment branding and recruitment marketing to interviewing and onboarding, Wilson HCG brings hands-on expertise to help you grow a healthy talent pipeline while staying true to your company's mission. With a configurable process and a dedicated team, Wilson HCG will help you attract and retain the top talent you need to be successful. Better people, better business is more than Wilson HCG's motto. It's the company's philosophy, how it operates internally and what it strives to achieve for its clients. If you're interested in learning about what Wilson HCG can do for your talent function, visit Wilson HCG that's HCG as in human capital group.com today. You know, I, I agree. And I'll go back to it just because we're on the topic. I think a few things that we want to be intentional about and our groups talked about was what is the intent or purpose of the meeting and what is the outcome? You know, that, 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 that allows people to know. I was telling a story that um, I was taking a cooking course in Copenhagen. <clears throat> and so it was this cooking course they didn't tell us what we were making. I didn't know what the outcome was. And, I'm, and it was really annoying because I couldn't really see the end product. And so sometimes the outcome is very helpful. And because then you can check and balance. Are we wasting our time? Did we get it done? Did we hit the outcome? But the, the, the one that, um, that I've been trying to do a good job on that I think I've caused some confusion in the past is in decision where, sorry, in a meeting where decisions needs to be made. I think I've caused confusion because we're a very collaborative environment. So for instance, today it's me, you, RJ, and a few others, we collaborate and I say, well, what do you think? Okay, let's collaborate and let's all make a decision. The next meeting I'm asking questions and I'm gonna make the decision and I've caused some confusion. So we, we discussed this yesterday about, you know, being intentional and opening a meeting to the best of your ability to say, and here's how a decision is going to be made. We're gonna get, I want feedback, but I'm making the decision. And and that's what I'm looking for. We're going to do this by consensus. What are your thoughts on decision-making for a meeting? Yeah. So you know, we talked, and it's funny, my team was just talking about this uh, earlier this week. Having a decision framework is extremely helpful, you know, whether it's you know, racy or rapid or dare, whatever it might be, it, there, there's, there's a million of them. But understanding, it comes down to understanding who the decision-maker is uh, and how decisions are going to be made. And that might be different in different situations. You just mentioned, for instance, we're going to do this by consensus, or this time I'm going to make the decision. Well, making your intentions clear going in, is extremely, extremely right. important. And then also helping people understand what are the rules of the game here? You know, are, are, is this, is the intention going in that we're going to, I want to hear all discussions or not, or all perspectives, and I'm not going to make a decision right now. I, I want debate. Uh, or is this more of a, the debate, decide, commit. Like we are not relitigating this decision afterwards. I need everybody to, to get on board, even if you disagree, disagree and commit. But having that identified decision maker and then also having everybody know the rules of the game and buy into those rules mm. is pretty important. Well, I love that. What did you say? Um, debate, decide, and commit? Debate, what decide, commit. Like have a healthy, healthy, honest debate. But mm -hmm. then when you make a decision, commit to that decision. 
know, I love the commitment and, you know, I go back to five dysfunctions of the team. You know, if you, you're not going to get results if your team hasn't had, you know, healthy conflict debate or, and, and then, you know, not committed around it. So, so I love that. Um, let's talk about listening to employees. And, you know, we talk about, or, or I should say, I've been talking about the, the difference from a pandemic, you know, what, what's really changed to me is the transactional relationship between employer and employee. And it was, look, RJ, whatever happens with you and your family and your dog, leave it at the door. We pay you to do a job. To now, it's really moved to how do we make RJ the best version of himself? How do we bring you up as a human being? So therefore, we want the best productivity from you here. Um, but from your standpoint, you know, because because those discussions now, hey, RJ, how you doing? How's your family doing? Are you feeling okay? Are you, are you overwhelmed? You know? How's your health and, and crossing lines that used to look frowned upon as drama and none of your business. What is the balance of listening and, and without being too intrusive and not pushing those boundaries? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. What's well, interesting. I think there, there are two challenges. One is first off as, as managers and leaders, how do we listen to our employees and listen with empathy you know, so that we can you know, build on their strengths. So, and that's, I think what, if, if it wasn't clear that was always an important leadership trait, it's become abundantly clear during the pandemic. Uh, and so th there, there's that behavioral element or that managerial style where listening, being open, connecting is, is incredibly important. We talked about how connections have decreased during the pandemic, like actually network connections. That sense of, of personal connection also gets really strained. It's one of the reasons why um, Gallup, you know, the surveying organization has for a long time measured whether you have a best friend at work. And it's one of their components for employee engagement. That particular component has become much more important during the pandemic. Right. Uh, and uh, I think the impact is almost doubled on things like whether someone thinks their company is a great place to work and they're likely to stay. So that, that connection and that listening on a personal level is critical. One of the things we've been focusing on in terms of the people analytics world is how do you listen at scale? So me listening to a member of my team is, is incredibly important for me as a, as, a, as a person and me as a leader. But how do I listen across you know, almost 30,000 employees? Uh, and then how importantly, how do we respond to that? So there, if, if you think about uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of employee surveys, I just saw a stat uh, this morning where just over 40% of employees say they get surveyed you know, once a year and about three quarters say they wanna be surveyed more often. Well, that's because they want to have a voice, right? They want to be listened to. Uh, and so doing that at scale and having a way to respond to employees is one of the challenges. I was at a um, quick story that was kind of, it was a moment of reflection for me. I was coming back from San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. And at, you know, after I got home, I got an email from the airline and it asked me to take a survey. I don't, have you gotten one of these, Ron, with the surveys from the yeah. from, from the airline? And I'm, going, I'm like, hey, I do this for a living. And like, I, I design and and launch surveys. So I should probably do this and, uh, and and help the company out. So I go I go start taking the survey, and I'm on page one. And it's a like five or six point Likert scale, pretty standard. And start ticking them off, and then it's page two and page three. And like 15 minutes later, I'm still doing the survey, and I just quit. You know, it's what we call abandonment. So I'm out of the survey. And I stepped back in this moment of reflection and I realized, you know, the company was asking me what it wanted to know. 
but it really didn't seem interested in what I had to say. Mm. A whole lot of questions and they're very structured and they were good questions. They were well-designed, but it's really, it was kind of more about the company, right? And they wasn't so much about my experience and what I, what I thought. And so I had a little moment of reflection and that as organizations, I think we do this a lot. You know, we design surveys uh, based on what we want to understand, but maybe we don't always give as much space for employees to tell us what they need. And there is a space, there is a place for structured design surveys. There's a, they're a very important thing. But as we started thinking about how do we listen to employees at scale, what we wanted to understand was how, how do we know what employees need when they need it and then are able to respond in the moment. And that's actually how we went about redesigning our listening program of probably about uh, a little over a year ago. So tell us about that. I'm curious, what, what, what did it look like and what did it morph to? Yeah, so we started with a, uh, a pretty traditional way of listening to our employees. It was a survey, uh, a longer survey, but it was, it was reasonable, you know, 10, 15 minutes, once or twice a year. And it allowed us to get really deep and understand what was happening at, at the team level across the organization that went back to managers and managers action planned and employees found it valuable. And managers found it very valuable as well. But what we realized was that we really wanted to understand what employees' experience was at Uber. And if we wanted to design a more human-centric experience, we needed more touch points than that. And you know, that became, became, frankly, glaringly obvious during the pandemic, right? It couldn't wait a year or, or six months to get that. But even if you just think about an employee's experience at work and their journey, Having those big you know, annual, semi-annual touch points wasn't sufficient. So what we started to do was we, we moved to a, a much smaller monthly survey. So much shorter every month to a sample of employees. Some companies do this weekly, some companies do it daily um, to get a more constant signal. Now the- um, Yeah, a finger on a pulse more, more or less, right? Yeah, exactly. And so we'd, we'd collect those up and then we made sure we got the results back to managers or to- owners of a process or owners of a function so they could see what was going on on a more regular basis and take action on it. And that was, uh, that was kind of the first iteration of the approach. We learned from that though. And so that worked really well for about a year. And what we learned was that if you're giving this directly to managers, that that's actually, it could be more information than a manager needs all the time. Like how do you take that information and build it more into their workflow, which is what we're working on now. Right. And sorry, RJ, because it could be disruptive. All of a sudden it's like, wait, we're trying to do this. And you're throwing this thing at me on a monthly basis. I have to change directions. Is that what you mean? Exactly right. Managers have a lot to deal with. So how do we, how do we take this information, which is very valuable and managers want to know, they want to understand how their teams are doing, what's going well, where there could be improvement, but how do we build that more into, into their workflow? And a lot of times perceptions, you know, perceptions will change. Uh, they may not change on a monthly basis, right? So how do we collect that and see where the differences are? The other thing we realized, and this is kind of how, how our own listening program is evolving and changing over time, is that uh, instead of surveying kind of the entire population or a sample on a monthly basis, look for, for different moments in time that really matter. You know, these moments in an employee's journey or their life cycle with the company. So for instance, you might wanna survey a candidate before they're even hired to understand what's that experience like? When you survey an employee when they're onboarding, huh? How's the onboarding going? What's going well? What's not? Or on their um, on their one year anniversary is a common touch point, and that creates a very continuous stream of feedback. Especially when you're asking not just about their sentiment, how they feel, but you're asking about specific experiences. When you get granular to that point of experience, uh, it's you can take much more specific action. 
you know what? You're so right. I just was making notes as you were talking. So in my real estate company, <clears throat> we're talking about, you know, we're really at the six month mark with our customers with an MPS and, and you're so right. It's, it's just, it's a loss opportunity to me. It was just, um, you're, you're, I was having an aha moment when you're saying that, you know, right after the customer's onboarded and, and things are fresh in their mind, right after an experience, I think you're so right. Or after we did a repair and maintenance job for their, their property. I know the, a company called Boardwalk does that. And I was also impressed by that. And they're doing exactly what you're talking about. I think that is such an opportunity to, to collect real-time data and really, it shows it that your business flows with the customer's journey. Absolutely. And if you can react to that, I mean, that's where right. you really sell it is, you know, first off, uh, listening to employees buys you a, a lot of credit and trust, telling them what you heard. So right. not just doing the survey and, and then not giving back, I could actually probably do more harm than good, but telling them what you found, what they said. But then when you, when you show that you're taking an action on it, you know, what we found when we moved from the, the semi-annual, annual, semi-annual approach to continuous approach was the perceptions that we were going to act on, that the company was and the managers were going to act on the survey went up by about 17 points, which is a lot. Because uh, you're asking more. Exactly. Uh, and then, and then we're, we're asking and then we're communicating. So a lot of the times what happens uh, in, in organizations is that we'll survey and we care, but the organization might not be as good at communicating back and talking about next steps. And then that's the, that's the really important last step. And what we've also found is that listening leads to trust. So when this happens and we create a dialogue with employees, it's really back and forth. It's not what I mentioned earlier of, hey, just what does the company wanna know versus giving a channel back for employees, trust goes up. And we saw trust go up by about 14 points. So that's, um, it, it's this very healthy dynamic you know, between kind of the company and employee uh, in terms of how we can all get better. And RJ, maybe I got lost there, but how did you find the balance with the manager who's now like, whoa, this is a little distraction. You know, I, I, I can't stop what I'm doing to execute on the survey. Well, how did you find the balance on execution? Yeah, we're still working on it to be, okay. to be brutally honest. So, yeah, yeah, please. Uh, like all things, we're a, we're a company that that's kind of built, born from experimentation. So uh, when we're going through those monthly surveys for the first year, we were checking in with our stakeholders, with managers and, and our functional stakeholders to see how it was going. And what we found was utilization was sky high in terms of our, our dashboards we send to managers for the first several months. Then it dropped down and dropped down and dropped down and dropped down. Uh, and so we started to engage with managers and say, what's working with this? What's not working with this? Uh, and that, uh, uh, that user experience testing or UX testing was really valuable. And then it told us, well, this was really valuable. And now I look at it every couple of months um, or you know, every quarter, even though I get it every month, which told us it's time for a change. You know, that uh, there's probably a better way to get feedback from, uh, from our employees and back to our employees and build it more in the flow of work. And that's what we're working on now is how do we, how do we build this more into the flow of work so it's not a separate tool, a separate dashboard, but something that's designed into what managers look at every day. So it might be designed into their people dashboard or business dashboard. You know, I, I, was, I was just thinking as you were talking because you think about the flow and you think about, okay, employee throws out a survey that says there's this problem. Okay. And the, 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 it seems obvious it's this problem. It hits the manager who may not have time to deal with it. I wonder if there's an opportunity to, you know, get, collect the, that information. It goes back to a supervisor from that group or, or to those employees who then 
come up with the solutions too, because you think you go back to change management and prioritization. And then they're like, wow, we, we're going to own this. We're going to bring the solutions. I wonder if there's something there in the loop, you know? I think it's a fantastic idea. And so you know, many times uh, you can have organizations that have a more centralized approach. So they're looking at the data uh, and they'll try to do it, uh, create recommendations from a center of excellence or center of expertise, or you get the results back to a manager or a chief of staff who start working on the action planning. And the trick there, I, I, th I would think, is that you know, that action planning has to meet the cadence of the business. So maybe that action planning happens on a annual basis or semi-annual, maybe try to tie it to the business planning cadence, but you wouldn't want to do that monthly, quarterly even seems too fast. Right. Um, but it's a great approach. One of the things that, we, that I think is super interesting is to what degree can you automate the actions in the moment? And there are some companies doing really cool work on this where this, there are nudges built in based upon the signal. So for instance, let's say some employees are disengaged and you're also seeing that, that um, there hasn't been a one-on-one -on -one in a couple of weeks. Well, the system might nudge the manager automatically and say, hey, you know, it's time for a one-on-one -on -one with Jane. Oh, wow. And so and that, that creates a much more instant kind of in-the-moment intervention. Uh, so and that's the, some of the cool stuff on the horizon from a technology standpoint. I love that. Um, I just think of that for my own business. We, you know, we probably don't do a good enough job with like who's looking for a one-on-one -on -one because, and, and my thoughts on the one-on-one -on -one change, you know, I, I was heading down the path of, I forget what the book, but there was a, a book and a methodology about checking in every week with, with people. And, and one of uh, my advisors, Holly Delaney, that used to be director of HR for Zappos, she told me about their approach, which was, you know, it comes down to the person. That feels like micromanagement to one person where someone else really loves it. Someone just wants to feel safe that they can check in. And so, you know, it's hard. I always think it's hard to systemize that. Um, but I think we need to do a better job with just asking, you know, what is the play for someone? Do they, you know, because we're probably not the stage to have a technology nudging. I think we're, we're still small enough that we could do that human to human. I, I love that approach though. Where'd you end up landing, Ron? Did you, do you look at Absolutely. What? Yeah. <laughs> So, so what we try to do is on onboarding to say, hey, RJ, you know, coaching is, is broad, but it comes down to what, what you would like. And so what, what, do you, what do you like as coach? Do you want to, you know, maybe we check, I mean, we have an onboarding, you know, a check-in plan, but past that, you know, what is important to you? Would you like to sit down once a month? Would you, do you just want me to answer the phone when you need me? What works for you? Um, and that, that is that that seems to work. And, and another thing that's that I find interesting is on the feedback loop is, um, and it's came out with a podcast too, uh, Whitney Johnson, actually, who, who wrote an incredible book, The S Curve. Um, I was telling her, I was, I was meeting with our COO. And I said, you know, I don't have any feedback. And so I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any constructive feedback for him. It's a, our first check in. And what do you think I should do? And she said, well, you know, you should tell him, that eventually there's going to be some constructive feedback. And how would you like to receive that? Not that, ah, that's even another layer under because you're not going to systemize how you give feedback. You, you really want to tailor it to the individual. Like how does feedback land really well with you? So I went right into that. It was, it was a wonderful conversation. That's fantastic. I love it. I, I want to go back to data for a sec, because when you were talking, I, I was envisioning you building um, a survey that, had this balance of data so we can make decisions, but openness to your story. So a customer could, 
could, um, you know, be open about their experience or, or in your case, employee surveys, but hard to, hard to take that data. Human beings have to really look at it. Like, how do you, how did you find the balance or are you guys still into it? Yeah. So the, that's kind of what we think of as the, the quantitative side and the qualitative side. So a lot, most surveys have you know, at least one kind of question, maybe it's 20, maybe it's more. Uh, and that's the structured side, right? There are specific things that going back to that airline story that the comp- that we want to know. We're testing for engagement or trust or specific employee experiences. And we want to be able to trend that and, bench- and benchmark it. But I think the, ri- the richness, Ron, is in the, the comments. It's in the qualitative feedback. So if you ask an employee, hey, what's going well? What's not going well? That's, you know, that's sometimes what I really, really want to understand. Now, for a thousand employees or 10 or 20,000 employees, reading through all those comments, that would be, it's doable, but that's, that's a big job. And then also it, it takes a special skill set to really understand what to read into those comments. How do you bucket them? How do you factor them appropriately? There's great technology, uh, we call it natural language processing or text analytics, that can start doing that for you. So still like for, for a leader or a manager, I wanna read every single comment you know, from every single employee uh, in, in the group, because I want that context and I want that feel. But across a larger, larger group, it's very helpful to bucket into themes so I can understand, okay, these are the main things I'm going for. And what's the sentiment associated with those comments? Is it positive? Is it negative? What's the split? And so it's a very, very effective way to go from you know, 20,000 comments and very quickly get a sense of, of where do I need to focus and dig in. It's funny, you know, I was asked not too long ago, what is the question we should be asking? If there was a, because I do find some of the surveys that I've seen, they're just, I'm going to, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but they're just kind of in the middle, you know, they're not getting to the meat is what I'll, as I'll, I'll phrase that. And I said, you know, I think a good question is, you know, knowing what you know about us as an employer and your job today, the things that you do, would you be excited to reapply for the role? And using the word excited. And I was saying, I don't know if a lot of people during the great resignation will have the courage to ask that question. What do you think of that question? Too harsh? No, I love it. So it gets to something that we think of as, you mentioned NPS scores earlier. It gets to the notion of a net promoter, right? Or, you know, there's an often used question of, would you recommend the company to a friend or family member? It's getting, mm-hmm. it's getting to that notion of, you know, hey, you know, would you take this trip again? Right. right? Um, and that's, that's a very important sentiment to be able to capture. And then you can, there are other questions where you can sort of dig into why or why not, right? So a lot of things that we look at are senses of, um, you know, senses of discretionary effort, senses of burnout, we really try to keep a, a, a pretty close eye on, like where are people on, on the curve? You, know, you can sprint, but you can only sprint for so long. So trying to understand that. But to answer your question, I love that question. What else, RJ? What else are you working on thinking about what's new and exciting or a big challenge that you guys need to overcome that we, ha- that we haven't talked about today? Let's see, that we haven't talked about. Um, you know, the, I think the big one that we are digging into right now is uh, collaboration. So we, we did talk about that a little bit, and then connectedness. So you know, how do we help? Pe- how do we help folks stay connected? Um, th- those are those are the big things. the The challenge with um, with connections is is going back to how do we um, 
how do we facilitate where and when people work? So we did those, those are kind of the big things. We talked about them a little bit, but that's that's occupying a lot of my focus and energy right now. So I do think it's gonna have the biggest impact both on employees' happiness, their lives, but also on business performance. You know, I, I go back to kind of our our solution. We're obviously not the size, which adds a ton of complexity, but that commitment to relationships has it has moved the needle on that for us. Like having people commit quarterly to who their relationship, uh, who they're going to build relationships with, it just, all of a sudden it just becomes easier to connect on something. And so, I don't know, I don't know if that's, um, if that strategy would work, but it certainly has helped us. So it's, it's interesting. I'd love to learn more about that, Ron, because one of the things that we've, I just saw a piece of research earlier this week that was kind of across industries, but I was talking about how employees of, or employees across companies have pulled back from investing and strengthening their relationships or building new relationships. There's been kind of a retrenchment, right? Like re- right. retrenching to your core team or even retrenching into in individual work. Have you, in your companies, have you gone about encouraging building new relationships and encouraging relationships? Well, that's a, I think that's a great question. And for us, it was, you know, it was really led um, through two things. I just said, I think it's time to go back to basics. And as I mentioned before, the, the basics are, here's some tools to build relationships. You know, I've got a, a book called Scaling Culture, where one chapter is about building relationships, how to rebuild trust when you broke it, what language to use, not use. There are all these tools and skills we just don't know. People that do it well, just, you know, this is just muscle memory, but no one really writes down, how do I really do this? You know, and so I think that, that you know, and you talked about it before, trust and you need trust to build a relationship. Those will go hand in hand and you can't do anything else without those. It's very t- tough. People are guarded. So that was step one. And step two was, hey, it, this was an accountability. I, I treated it like a project because if I said, hey, we need to um, create a new onboarding program, people will move and let's, uh, you know, there's a change management, let's get buy-in. And so after the tools, the question was, look, we need to do this. As a company, it's going to be important to you as individuals. It'll help you bond, build friendships, relationships here. So let's start with who you don't have a relationship with. And I, or, or I'm, I'm encouraging everybody to give two to three people, one a month for the next quarter that they're committing to spend some time with. And so we, we, we put it in a scorecard and only that moved the needle on it. Fascinating. So the measurement of managed behaviors. Yeah. RJ, I've absolutely enjoyed uh, talking to you. I've got a page and a half full of notes, which I can't read my own writing, but I figure I can think I can figure some of the stuff out. And so thank you. I, uh, I really enjoyed your counsel and your, your, um, your stories and uh, your experience. And, and I'm sure the, the audience are going to be absolutely ear to ear smile after hearing this episode. So thank you, my friend. Ron, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. For more information about RJ, please follow him on LinkedIn. To learn more about our books or the Scaling Culture Masterclass, please go to scalingculture.org. And to learn more about our sponsor of this episode, Wilson HCG, check out wilsonhcg.com. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, Episode, please leave us a comment and share the podcast with one of your friends or colleagues. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.